0: HD SmartCast. You're listening to a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HT Smartcast. Hello and welcome to a new episode of 1947, The Road to Indian Independence. A special podcast series presented to you by the Hindustan Times to mark India at 75. It was 1945. The Second World War had ended. The British were weak. Weaker than they had ever been. India was inching towards independence. But a clear political roadmap and a timeline was still missing. The Indian National Army trials, the INA trials had led to widespread anger. The Muslim League had stepped up its agitation for Pakistan. It was a turbulent, uncertain time. And then, at the end of 1945 and in early 1946, the empire was struck with a final blow. The Royal Indian Naval Mutiny of 1946 took place there. Starting from Bombay, it spread across the country and at its peak saw the involvement of 20,000 sailors across 78 ships and 21 shore establishments. The mutiny eventually ended, with 89 years after the Sepoy Mutiny, the British were stung with a rebellion from within their coercive apparatus. Colonial rule suddenly looked more fragile. To explore this often overlooked aspect of the freedom struggle, its roots, its evolution and its impact, I'm delighted to welcome to this penultimate episode of the podcast, Pramod Kapoor. Pramod ji is one of India's veteran publishers, the publisher of Roly Books. He's also the author of 1946 Royal Indian Navy Mutiny, the last war of independence. Welcome, from Moji.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Prajan.
0: Take us back to 1945-46. As I said, the war had ended, but there remained acute tension between the British and the Indian nationalists about the future of India. Communal division had deepened. This was also a time when the armed forces had expanded. And suddenly, from Bombay, news emerged of discontent within the Navy. What was happening?
1: I think for this, I'll have to take you to, um, let's say, 39, when the mobilization of these youngsters, young naval ratings, as they were called, was happening. Uh, they were shown dreams beyond reality. These The advertisements were issued to attract the parents. The father particularly said that you send your son into the Royal Indian Navy. His future is made and that... In two years' time, he'll be an officer and all kinds of dreams were sold. On the very first day or the very first month, I would say, that when they joined, they they saw that this was all a, a false promise. And that's what I say in the book, that I think the seeds of mutiny were sowed on the day they were recruited. They proved themselves in the World War II there were several occasions when they got awards and were recognized Uh, yet when the war ended all the promises that they were made were overlooked but let's say before that let me take you to 1942 when gandhi ji had given a call for quit india movement even at that time the naval ratings worked with the british and they didn't show any sign of rebellion, even though the discontent was simmering and that they, the, how they were badly being treated. There were awful living conditions. The food was unpalatable. Uh, then they were on top of that was racial abuse. Yet they survived. I mean, they went through all this. In 1945, when the World War ended, the British coffers were empty. They had no money to further sustained armed forces like the one they had recruited at the beginning of the World War, they started to demobilize them. And the demobilization was done in a very, very shoddy and pitiful manner. There was a target given that 700 naval ratings have to be demobilized every day, and that had to be carried out. And then they were sent to camps and from where they were supposed to be given the orders to march out, etc. It was really pathetic. After having served the British Navy so well, and the British are so well, having won battles, having saved their ships and lives, this is how they were treated. And that was simmering in them. Now, around the same time, towards the end of 1945, the British did a very, I would say, very un-British-like act when they put a Muslim and a Sikh and a Hindu on trial in Redford. These were INA um, officers, so to say, Dillon, Sagal, and Shah Shah Nawaz Khan. That united not just the forces, but the sense of being together, despite coming from different religion, this started to build in common people too. And that's when, uh, you know, this all was becoming explosive. And on a particular day, I think it was the 10th or 11th of February, 1946, because some of these naval ratings disobeyed or disrespected one of the commanding officers of Signal School, the second largest Signal School in the world, HMIS Talwar, he came into the barracks of these boys and they never got up and they were they were still on the court smoking and he lost his temper and he called them, you sons of police, you sons of etc. And that's when at least 15, 17 of them who who witnessed this decided to rip to mutiny. They, They first wrote to the commanding officer and copied the letters to some other people, some other officers and they were given seven days to prove what this particular officer, Commander King, had abused them. This was really a very strange thing because the complaint was made to the same man who had actually abused them. So, obviously, he got out of it. And that's when they struck work on the 18th of February, 1946, and said they will not eat They went on a hunger strike, which was more like a Gandhian hunger strike than a violent protest.
0: Thank you for laying out the context, Pramodji. So, before we get to the strike and the form the strike took, uh, what you are suggesting is that working conditions, living conditions, terms of service... Uh, were immediate triggers for the ratings. Uh, they were unhappy. They were dissatisfied. The British had not been good employers. Had not met their promises. Along with this was this larger arc of the national freedom struggle that was going on, from which they were not insulated. They were seeing what was going on outside, and they were that struck a chord with them, particularly the INA trials, right. So what were the nature of demands of these ratings? Was it to do with the freedom struggle or was it to do with their service conditions or was it both? It was
1: a, a bomb which was made of all these elements you just mentioned, that it was, it was the uh, poor service conditions, bad living conditions, the uh, unpalatable uh, food where the mortar will be mixed in dal and there were stones found in them. There was uh, racial abuse. At the same level, the Britishers' uh, ratings were given many facilities, while the Indian ratings were were shouted at. What not just shouted at, were, were freely abused. So this was one thing. At the same time, they were greatly influenced by INA because the society around them, including their friends and who were not part of the armed forces, would actually laugh at them and say that Look at INA; these are the boys who have actually rebelled and they are fighting." the British, and you're taking salaries from these people. Well, where is your nationalism? So that aroused the sense of nationalism in them. Then, in times of liberty, liberty is when they are free on every Sunday, they would read newspapers and see what Gandhiji is saying, what Sardar Patel is saying, and what Japrakash Narayan and, uh, and, you know, the younger leaders are saying. And this was all building up. It was ticking like a time bomb, which exploded on the 18th of February. And on 18th of February, when they went on strike, the first few hours were still the British thought that they could handle them. They sent their the chief of the Bombay naval staff. He spoke with them and they were trying to persuade them. Then they said, why don't you make a committee? And we can't hear 500 people. So you make a committee and present your demands. That's when they created a committee of which... A Muslim was the president, M.S. Khan, who unfortunately could not uh, trace because he, he. I was told that he went to Pakistan and I, he was the only man I could not trace. Then there was Sardar Madan Singh, who was the vice president. I spoke to all his the son; Two sons live in Sacramento, in California, The another in Spain, and the daughter was married uh, in Dalhousie. So I met and I spoke to each one of them the wife of Madan Singh is still alive, that I was able to piece through what happened on 18th. Now, when this committee was made, when this committee was made, they presented a set of demands to the Britishers, because that's what the FOB, the man in charge of Bombay Naval Authority, had had actually asked for. And among the... Demand was, of course, the, you know, you free all the INF soldiers who have been detained. There was better for, uh, working condition, racial abuse, etc. Other than that, there was also that, uh, that, uh, that the, in Indonesia, the, uh, the, the British forces should stop fighting the local uh, Indonesians because they were also fighting for their liberation. This is the, some of the main demands that they put forward.
0: I was just reading, and I think it is in your book, that around this time, Hindustan Times, had a headline, Bombay in revolt, city, of battlefield. This is on February 22nd, I think. So how did the revolt then proceed? And how did it spread so rapidly across so many ships and shore establishments?
1: You see, on the 18th of February, it was relatively quiet because there were parleys, there were dialogue going between. But the tension was there from both sides. The ratings were, were new, having worked with British for so long. These people are not going to be quiet. And the British officers also, while preparing themselves, they knew that these, these boys are not going to keep quiet or at least suspected that if in case if they did, what should we do? So there were preparation going on on both sides. But by 19th morning, because some of them this had happened on 18th itself, the a rating these young boys who were from 16 to 25 years of age went from ship to ship took out the the flags of uh, the british ensign and they replaced them with the tricolor of congress uh, green of muslim league and red of the communist all the ships that were around there were 21 ships all ships had uh, these flags they had taken control they had taken control of the of the most of the Uh, shore establishments which were around the gateway of India and Dockyard. So therefore HMIS Talwar, which was the hub of activity, which is where the mutiny began, was actually a signal school. So, And these boys who had started the mutiny, they were very well trained in signal. So therefore in no time the news that they had mutinied spread from Indonesia to Aden, you know, to everywhere and, and everyone knew and the activities started activity of rebellion started on each ship anywhere in the world where there was a Royal Indian Navy ship. So therefore, it spread very quickly by 19th. The British stopped the water supply and the food supply to the main castle barrack that was, which was next to the HMIS Salwar. The plan of the British was to starve them and to, to make them come out. And that is when the strain between the two started. And on the 20th, then a huge amount of fighting took place between the British fired first, of course, because the Indians serving in the British army refused to fire on, on their Indian brothers. So the white soldiers were brought in. And that is how, for four hours, the gun battle took place. I mean, it was not like a gun battle every minute. But yes, you know, they, they were fighting from inside. They were By then, the, the Indian naval ratings had taken control of the, all the arms in each of these uh, shore establishments and they've broken them and they've they taken an ounce in there. And that is how on the 20th, all this began. It was so tense that there were telegrams flying between Delhi, Bombay and Westminster in, in London. And there was also a lot of disagreement between the Prime Minister's office and the Viceroy office saying you should have marked this urgent and, and immediate. You didn't mark it. We got to know this. I and mean, there was a complete panic there. You know, In that panic, Two things happened. On the 18th itself, in fact, the prime minister in the House of Commons and House of Lords announced the cabinet mission will travel to India to talk about the transfer of power. And a day later, the British Army brass or the defense brass actually ordered one of the most powerful ship, HMIS Glasgow, which was in Shinkumeli at that time, to rapidly sail towards Bombay. And on the 20th, or I think 21st, they ordered a low sortie of the Royal Air Force, just to scare these boys. These airplanes flew, they were called mosquitoes, these mosquitoes flew low, and over the gateway of India, and that sort of angered the Bombay people as well. They thought that the British were using all their might to crush these young boys who were actually fighting for the freedom of their country. So they came on the street. They came on the street. Uh, they threw the food packets inside. All the Irani restaurants that were around that in Kolaba, they made packets. Uh, you know, the civilians came in full support of these youngsters. Of course, they were also... Uh, encouraged by the, the communists, who gave a call to all the mill workers, the students union, etc., to come out and support these boys. This created much more panic in the minds of British. And on the 22nd and 23rd, they were massive firing for that took place. The tanks were out on the streets of Bombay. And as many as official figures, 500 people were killed in two days and about 1,500 injured. But there are other accounts to say that there was not even an inch of space in any of the hospitals for the injured to be treated. They were being treated outside and in the parking lots, etc., etc. So this resulted into, into a massive show of force by the British. And that's when the politicians came in a big way to stop all that what was happening, although they were working from 1920 itself.
0: You know, the picture that you are drawing for us is of discontent that translated into this rebellion. The British were taken aback. Uh, they retaliated like most oppressors do with a show of force. That alienated people even more and led to a degree of popular mobilization that was probably hard to imagine in a city like Bombay and in a naval establishment like Talwar. Uh, that's when the Indian nationalists stepped in. So I'll take on from what you said. What was the response of the nationalist movement at this point, particularly the Congress and the Congress leadership? When they
1: saw when it's not just Congress, but also Muslim League, Mr. Chinna was in Calcutta at the time. He was he was not in Delhi, but he was keeping a close uh, touch with what was happening. Um, Gandhiji was in Pune, uh, but Gandhiji uh, had said that he will never compromise with the violence. So therefore, he would not support this mutiny at all. Sardar Patel was made in charge, and he had many rounds of, of discussion with the leaders of these naval ratings. Uh, Nehruji was considered a young Turk at the time, but I think he could see the, the huge responsibility that would be bestowed upon him very soon. So therefore, he was being, on one day, being very aggressive, the other day being very diplomatic, but his entire thing was to, to find peace somehow. So Sardar Patel was the one who was actually made to, to negotiate or to talk, or not such really negotiate, but to persuade these ratings to surrender. Because there were many reasons. Politics is always complicated, and I think it was as complicated as it is now. It was complicated at the time. They didn't want the communists to get all the credit because communists were getting popular support from the people and they were getting applause from the people that these are the only people who are standing by them. They didn't want the communists to get the credit. They did not want to rock the boat because there was parleys and there was discussion going on with the British all the time uh, about transfer of power. I mean, this was proceeding. And they didn't want these young kids to, to actually take the credit for that And not only just, also to rock the boat, which is slowly moving towards freedom. And the third and the most important thing was also Hindu and Muslim. There was Mr. Jinnah, there was uh, Mr. Patel. And therefore, uh, you know, they didn't want this sort of thing to, to come in front, you know.
0: Can I just step in there, you know, on the Hindu-Muslim question, the mutiny saw the participation of all communities. The committee that you mentioned was led by a Muslim. This was a moment of actually Hindu-Muslim unity. So could that have been a bridge in some ways for the nationalist leadership? Why were they worried about it? Well, one, as I said, I put it in my book that
1: this was the great moment. The partition would have been much less bloody if somehow this this force that will come up at that time of Hindu-Muslim brotherhood, uh, that was used when the independence was in, imminent. You know, there were several examples that one of the protagonists of the, the naval mutiny says that, that they were a Muslim, a Hindu, a Sikh, a higher caste, a lower caste. They were all made to sit around a wooden uh, vessel full of dal and were given rotis. He said next to me was a Muslim. He was a Hindu. This was B.C. that I'm talking about, who was the man who started it all. Next to him was a Muslim. Next to him, the other side was a Sikh or Dalit or a, or a Brahmin. He said there was no difference. The moment we put our roti in the dal, we all became one, you know. So there was that kind of brotherhood and bonhomie, you know, that was among them.
0: And so even though we were seeing both Hindus and Muslims participate, both the Congress led by Sardar Patel at this stage on this issue and the Muslim League led by Jinnah were not particularly enthusiastic about the mutiny.
1: Well, I wouldn't say about Sardar Patel because there is nowhere he is mentioned that Hindus should do this or Hindus should do that. On the contrary, Mr. Jinnah did say that in his uh, talking to the uh, young ratings who went to, say, to meet him. He said, "I don't want my Pakistan naval officers to look that shabby. You're not even wearing proper uniforms, you know." And even to press, he said that, "Look, I'm concerned more about the Muslims in the force." So there was that from Jinnah's side, but that wasn't there from Sadar Patel's side. What came out very apparent to me, or very clear to me, is that these people were the, the the leaders knew that independence is imminent. And they did not want it to upset that. That was the, one of the first uh, reasons. And when they asked them to surrender, the committee did agree to surrender. They went back and there was an all-night drama. Some of them left the meeting. Some of them shouted. Some of them cried. Some of them, in the end, they hugged each other. And at precisely two minutes before the deadline, they actually surrendered. But they surrendered because they knew that there is no political leadership with them. They knew from day one that they are not going to win by way of arms and and, and fighting. But they knew that they had a superior hand in the whole thing because they knew that the British were petrified. The British were scared of what was happening. So they wanted this to continue. In fact, there were many times they said, look, we don't know how to fight with Cherkas. We know how to fight with guns. We know that in the end we we may perish. But so what? We'll perish for our country. This... Perhaps the political leaders didn't want any bloodshed because Gandhiji very clearly could never compromise with violence. And Gandhiji was in one way or the other a dictator of Congress at the time.
0: How did it end? You mentioned the surrender. What were the terms of the surrender and what happened to the ratings after they surrendered?
1: Well, they were made to surrender unconditionally. But there were assurance given to them. Uh, Sardar Patel and others who were with them to escape Patel, they gave them the assurance that there will be no uh, victimization because of this, that they will make sure that because of this they are treated fairly, etc. None of this could be, because they were they made promises that they were not authorized or capable of keeping. But perhaps in order to pacify everything and to stop the rebellion, this is what they had to do. They actually acted like any politician that does things now. This is how they did at that time. They lied to them. In fact, Nehruji said three days later in a public meeting in Chow Party, he said that uh, we made promise that we were not capable of keeping. Three days later, let's say uh, they surrendered because of assurance, because of internal reasons, whatever they surrendered. And then a day later, all of them were rounded up and taken to Mulun camp, which is like a concentration camp, and that is where they were put. And again, the same kind of thing with you know bad food and all kinds of uh, you know abuses, etc., were hurled at them. Uh, what is really sad is that even after independence, none of them were taken into back into the into the forces when they applied for it, when they made petitions, when even ten years later, one of them wrote to Pandit Nehru that look you were on the streets you were a freedom fighter you fought on political grounds we were freedom fighters also we fought on what we had and look at this you are the prime minister of the country and we are on the streets you know so they were not taken in despite the promise that was made to them the two line letter saying that the government has decided that none of the naval ratings who were discharged will be taken into the service, and those who were discharged with disgrace will not be eligible for even civil service. Now that, I thought, was, uh, was a big letdown. It was corrected in the 90s when two of the tugs were named after B.C. Dutt and Madan Singh, S.S. Madan Singh and S.S.B.C. Dutt. And then there was a, a mutiny memorial that was set up in Bombay. All this was done, but it was too little, too late.
0: Did it have a role in hastening the British exit from India, or Absolutely. do you think it was inevitable because the British were going anyway within a year? Or you think that this incident played a role?
1: Well, it hastened. There was no one reason why British left, but this was one reason that British left. Three days after after the mutiny started, Auchinleck, who was the Indian head of uh, the armed forces, uh, wrote to the Prime Minister Atlee at the time saying that. The way things are progressing, there are more Indian soldiers than all the British taken together. He warned the prime minister that there can be very serious consequences. He also said that it will be very difficult for us to handle. The British were petrified. And this certainly, as I said, on day one the mutiny started, the cabinet mission was announced. On the 19th morning, all the newspapers had cabinet mission announcement that at the end of March, a high-powered cabinet mission will come to sort out the transfer of power from India. I'm sure it was in the discussion for some time, but it was hastened because of this mutiny.
0: Thank you so much, sir, for bringing alive this episode for our listeners and for your contribution to to modern scholarship. Uh, As you said, this is something that shook the core of the empire soon after the war ended. It hastened the exit of the British and was the final step in India's journey to freedom on August 15th, 1947. This episode of 1947, Road to Indian Independence, was conceptualized and hosted by Prashant Chah. It was produced by Deepthi Ahuja. The sound design and editing is by Sanju Abraham. For more updates on this podcast, follow HT Smartcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to htsmartcast.com. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HT Smartcast. HT Smartcast.